Good afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, coming to the Hudson Institute. We have uh, a wonderful, uh, a, a wonderful panel here this afternoon, um, which uh, will include my colleague Hudson senior fellow Michael Duran, um, Ali Shihabi, uh, the executive director of the Arabia Foundation, a think tank focused on the geopolitics of the Arabian Peninsula, and the author of the Saudi, among other books, the Saudi Kingdom between the Jihadi Hammer and the Arabian Anvil. And immediately to my right is uh, Mohammed Al Yahya a Saudi Arabian political analyst and commentator. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, a research fellow at the Gulf Research Center, and serves on the advisory board for the future trends in the GCC program at Chatham House. And I am Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson as well, also a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. And the panel, uh, the panel this afternoon is called America's Allies and the New Administration. Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Uh, I thought that it was especially important to be able to talk about uh, to be able to talk about Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states uh, right with the new administration starting off. As you've already seen, there's already some um, there are already a number of hot button issues, namely uh, in Yemen, in the Red Sea, in the Persian Gulf, where traditional American allies uh, are facing uh, are facing issues with the Islamic Republic of Iran, as they have the last eight years. And during the course of the last couple of years, we've had a number of panels here. Uh, Mike Duran and I have talked about the Iranian project around the region and how the Obama administration, how the Obama White House dealt with it. And uh, I think right now we're certainly looking, uh, we're looking for a new approach and uh, I think to figure out whether or not we've already seen one and to what extent it will be a new and different approach. That's what I hope that we'll find, uh, we'll find this afternoon. Mike, if you would start off, please. Thanks. Thanks, Lee. Thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, I'll just start with your, uh, uh, with your basic question. Is there a new approach or not? And uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's quite obvious that uh, there's a very new approach. Uh, and it's, uh, it's almost, uh, I think, a 180-degree turn from the, uh, uh, from the Obama administration. Um, I don't believe that it's been quite reported that way, but I think that's definitely the uh, the case. Uh, the the big uh, change uh, of the Obama administration's policy toward the the Middle East, uh, and particularly the Persian Gulf, uh, was the decision uh, not to compete with Iran uh, for uh, regional primacy, uh, or to put it another way, to make Iran a uh, to make Iran a partner or potential partner in the regional security architecture. Uh, they, the Obama administration p gave Iran a seat at the table, uh, and uh, uh, particularly with respect to Syria, but also, uh, uh, also uh, with Syria and Iraq, but in the, in the region more, more broadly. <laughs> it, uh, it treated Iran as a, uh, as a constructive interlocutor, even on Yemen. Uh, and uh, it didn't announce this uh, as a. Uh, it didn't announce this as a major initiative. It's just when you put together all the things that it actually did, combined with the things it said and didn't said, that is where uh, that is where I think you ha you have to end up. Uh, and uh, the Trump administration has, from the beginning, sent out a, a very different set of uh, set of signals. There was. Uh, 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 General Flynn, the National Security Advisor's uh, statement, uh, putting Iran on notice uh, 
Uh, I think that was just a general statement uh, to, to Iran and to our allies that the United States is going to compete. Or to put it, uh, I, I think, in the simplest possible terms, reassert American primacy. Uh, the Obama administration treated regional security as a sort of roundtable discussion uh, with American allies and, uh, uh, and enemies like Iran at the table, and it treated itself as, uh, as the kind of uh, convener of the discussion. It was tabling the papers and then uh, having the discussion between the Saudis and, 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 and the Iranians. Uh, whereas in previous administrations, the United States has seen itself as the leader of a coalition, uh, a coalition of allies that included the Saudis, the Israelis, uh, the Turks, and others. And the job of the coalition was to diminish the position of the Iranians uh, across the board. So what I, what I think we're seeing is a return to that older conception where the U.S. is, uh, uh, where the U.S. is the leader of a, uh, of a coalition. Uh, and so you see, you know, not just in the general statement from, from, uh, uh, from the National Security Advisor, but also say with regard to the way, uh, the United States is now, um, uh, is now, uh, speaking about the, the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, it is identifying them as a terrorist proxy. That's in, in, in its own words. Whereas the Obama administration, when it talked about the relationship between the Houthis and the Iranians, was never quite sure. Is it really a proxy? Do we know? This is perhaps being exaggerated, uh, and so on and so forth. Whereas there's just a clear identification on the part of the, the, the Trump administration. Um, just a couple more sentences about, well, where, where does this all lead? Uh, this reassertion of American primacy. Uh, the the key question there, I think, or the, the question that has gotten the most attention uh, so far is the question of the U.S. and Russia. Because Russia and Iran are in an alliance, certainly in Syria, I would argue beyond Syria, but certainly in Syria they're in an alliance. Uh, so if you're reaching out to Russia, you're, you're, you're reaching out to Iran. If you're pushing back against Iran, you're pushing back against Russia. So uh, how, uh, how is the administration going to square the circle between the Russia, its, its policy, already stated policy, of pushing back against the Iranians, combined with these, uh, uh, these uh, very provocative statements from the president that he wants to reach out to the Russians in, uh, in, in Syria. How are they going to square that circle or manage that, uh, uh, that contradiction? Personally, um, and we can perhaps get into this further uh, in, the, in the discussion. I think that the contradiction is a little bit um, overblown. Uh, because Russia and Iran are in an alliance, if the United States follows through on its clearly stated, if the Trump administration follows through on its clearly stated intention to push back against the Iranians across the region, because one of the things that I say uh, also distinguishes the Trump administration's approach from the Obama administration's approach is that it is treating the entire Middle East as a single strategic arena, uh, whereas the Obama administration would talk in one terms about Iraq and other terms about Syria and so on, divided up into seven different pots. They're, they're treating it as one. If they're going to push back against the Iranians, they are by definition pushing back against the, uh, uh, pushing back against the Russians. So however sweetly the president talks about uh, uh, about uh, his relationship with with Vladimir Putin. 
you know, you can sit down at the table with Putin and say nice things to him, but if you're taking his assets away during dinner, right, that's a very different relationship than seeking to cut a deal with the with the Russians and 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 give them a place of honor in the uh, in the region. And it looks to me much more like a, a policy of pushback than of accommodation. I, I think that's a very good point. If you look at what's already happened the last couple of weeks, um, the idea of going after different Iranian assets in different ways, that certainly, I believe that does put Putin on some sort of uh, a lesser level of notice, perhaps. But insofar as the Russians rode the Iranians in uh, to the region, then that is an issue. Um, and I know this is something else we're going to get into here. And we're also going to uh, get into some more details, including uh, stuff in the Gulf and stuff about Yemen. And Mike, you had a really nice point about the Houthis. And I, maybe not now, but at some point, Mohammed, I think, will want to talk about that here. So if you'd like to pick it up from where Mike left it off. Sure. I mean, a lot of things I prepared, Mike touched on just a little bit more eloquently than I would have said them. Believe me, it wasn't more eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the conventional narrative you see in Washington in the past eight years under the Obama administration is that uh, the struggle in the region is between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and it's a 1,400-year-old struggle whereby the United States is a removed and isolated uh, third party, you know, almost an arbiter around the round table, just like you mentioned, Mike. And I think that's very uh, problematic. Uh, in that the conflict isn't really between Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know. Uh, it's not one between Sunnis and Shias. It's primarily one between uh, Iran and the United States. The Iran nuclear deal didn't deliver a more responsible Iran, uh, a more uh, reasonable uh, member of the international community. This never happened. It was wishful thinking. Um, and if you look at, uh, if you go to Tehran, for example, and ask uh, people in the uh, security establishment there what the largest threat for the Islamic Republic is, they will tell you it's the United States. Few people will tell you it's not the United States. Uh, if you go to Riyadh, for example, though, and ask them the same exact question, nobody will tell you that uh, it's any country really but Iran. Uh, so this asymmetry is very important to show. I mean, if you look at the 1996 Khobar bombings, the, the prime uh, 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 targets were the United States. If you look at Iran's uh, uh, expansionism in the region uh, and its operations since the 80s, since after the revolution, they've been targeting U.S. servicemen uh, and U.S. installations. So uh, if you ask the Iranians why the uh, uh, Saudis pose a threat to them, they will inevitably tell you that it's because they perceive the Saudis as a proxy of the United States, as an ally of the United States, and this is why they oppose them. You know, I was uh, doing a, a track two discussion uh, with some Iranians uh, uh, who are um, in academia and the security establishment in Iran in Istanbul in December, and um, it was amazing that one of them mentioned this uh, uh, flat out. He said uh, uh, to the other uh, participants, he said, uh, we have no problem with Saudi Arabia because it's a Sunni state. We have no problem with Saudi Arabia because it's competing with us for influence or anything like that. If Saudi Arabia were to uh, renounce its relationship with um, uh, the United States tomorrow and call the U.S. the great Satan, we'd give them a hug right away. Uh, and this is, the, this is the biggest misconception, I think, um, uh, that stood uh, against uh, um, truly understanding what's uh, happening in the region. And to bring it um, uh, closer to, to what um, uh, the Trump administration is doing right now, I, I would say I agree. I mean, it looks um, – uh, I take what, what uh, uh, officials in the Trump administration say at face value, that they're reinforcing um, uh, uh, traditional uh, alliances and traditional uh, partnerships uh, in an era – after eight years – uh, of, of uh, the Obama administration perhaps reaching out to adversaries at the expense of, of, uh, of partners. Um, the, the recent statement on, on the Houthi attack um, uh, in Iran was very interesting to me because, you know, I, I, I used to always tell friends of mine that I think the Iranians will test the Trump administration in the first six months. They'll either harass uh, U.S. ships, they'll... Uh, uh, um, 
kidnap uh, Americans in Iraq um, or in Iran, uh, or they'll uh, arrange for a U.S. ship to be attacked or arrest Marines, for example, uh, just to see what the Trump administration is going to do. The Trump administration didn't really wait for them to do that. They jumped on the opportunity, and uh, as soon as the Houthis, um, uh, an Iranian proxy, attacked Iran, they put Iran on notice and sent a very clear message from the outset. And I think that's very important in setting the tone uh, for the relationship going forward. Thank you, Mohammed. That's great. And look, one of the points that you make, which I think is very, very important, um, to move it away from, not just so that we can actually see the size of the United States and the region and, uh, and the place that it plays uh, and the, the role that it plays in the Middle East, but also to move it away from what was patently sectarian noise, putting it in terms of Sunni and Shia, Saudi and Iran. And the last thing the United States policymakers should be doing is adding to sectarian noise in the region. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's very, very helpful. What, what, it's become what, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's a bad way to, to direct policy. Um, Ali, if you, could, uh, if you could pick it up from there. Yes, I mean, thank you, Lee. You know, the, uh, obviously, as Mike said, there's been a huge change. And the counterintuitive thing to tell a Washington audience, or many Washington audiences, actually, um, is that, in a way, the minute President Trump was sworn in on Inauguration Day, the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf got to be a safer place for the established order. If you're a believer in the status quo, and if you're not a believer in revolution, in revolutionary change to bring the system down, the minute he came into office, his presence and his administration's presence uh, made the region a safer place because it dramatically pushed up the risk premium for Iran, uh, for any actions Iran might undertake. The problem with the previous Obama administration um, was that it had given the Iranians a very large margin of a benefit of doubt. Um, it had um, uh, bought into what we saw uh, in, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf as a, as a good cop, bad cop game that the Iranian government was playing very intelligently, uh, whereby they would have their spokesman, their foreign minister and other spokesmen in the West say something, but ultimately the, 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 the power was held by the supreme leader and the revolutionary guard, and the revolutionary guard was undermining four states, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and then Yemen. What, what, what gave, what lost America's credibility also was, was when, when President Trump, when President Obama allowed the red line to be crossed. With the new administration coming in, uh, I think everybody recognized that it has a much lower tolerance for provocation. And the team around the president were highly experienced. Many of them had been on the ground operating in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you had been on the ground, and many of the members of the American military uh, would, I'm sure, confirm that, they had direct experience dealing with the Revolutionary Guard. They could see the wolf under the sheep's clothing. So, in a way, a, you had a much more uh, experienced uh, party coming in, backed up by an administration that had a much lower tolerance for provocation. And as a result, frankly, already people feel safer. The reaction of the administration with the senior source coming out a week ago uh, when uh, commenting on the, on the attack on the Saudi ship and then General Flynn uh, reiterating that two days later only you know, put, put meat on the bones. 
uh, it only really uh, increased the level of, of comfort. Now, it's early days, and, and we're in a volatile environment. But, I mean, I can say that there, there is a high level of comfort uh, at the moment compared to uh, the way things were, particularly in the, in the last few years of the, of, the, of the Obama administration, where it was also felt that the Obama administration had become such a captive of the nuclear deal um, that um, because it was one of their main legacies, they were allowing to, the Iranians to take advantage of that, and that gave the Iranians a much larger room to maneuver on the ground. So I think today, and as I said, it, it's a changing environment, but there is a feeling that American deterrence has, been, has, has, has re-emerged, and that deterrence will not necessarily have to be action, because America does not need to always act to deter. It's just when people take America's coercive power seriously, they are deterred. Thank you, Elliot. Let me ask something of, of the three of you. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded that the case that the three of you seem to be making is right, that the Trump administration has a much more forceful posture. But really, it hasn't even been a month yet. Um, and the administration uh, put sanctions on the Iranians, some ballistic missiles, some related to other things. But we know the Obama administration did the same thing. The New York Times says that the Trump administration's policy so far is indistinguishable, indistinguishable from Obama's. So wh what's the case that you can make either from the posture? Again, it's not even been a month. So, Mike, you're, well, Mike, Mike, why don't you start off here? Yeah, I, uh, that's, uh, that's nonsense. Okay. It's, uh, it's outrageous nonsense, and it should be laughed out of the room. Seriously, no serious person who's been following Middle East policy can, can look at what, at, 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 at the, you mentioned, the, the sanctions on ballistic missiles okay. and say that this is something that the Obama administration was doing. It's the, it's the exact opposite. Now, it's something the Obama administration was sometimes saying. So that when, when they sold, uh, and uh, Ali mentioned that the U.S. policy in the Middle East was hostage to the nuclear deal. When they sold the nuclear deal uh, to the public, um, and those of us who were, who were concerned about it said, you are elevating the Iranians across the board in the region. And they said, no, 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 no. This is only a, this is a very narrow deal, only about non-proliferation, and we are, you are free to, to put, we're free to push back against the Iranians anywhere else in the region. And in fact, we're going to do it, and we will, we'll push back against them wherever they are. Uh, John Kerry said that in testimony before the, I think it was the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We're going to push back across the board. They never did. Quite the opposite. When, when Congress moved, uh, uh, Reuters reported last October, when Congress moved to sanction the Iranians, the administration came in very heavily and said, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't sanction the Iranians on ballistic missiles because it will tank the nuclear deal. So it's the exact opposite, right? They're kind of, so it's, uh, it's outright. And, and frankly, uh, 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 I'm, trying to, I'm trying to look sober and judicious and not get emotional about it. But no, it's, that, that, it that, is outrageous. You're, you're it's outrageous. A great job. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, out, it's outrageous that people in serious newspapers can make this kind of claim. Ali, do you want to? Yes, I mean, it's psychology that matters. You know, okay. America's upheld the global order post-World War II without actually in its most successful fashion when it didn't have to uh, fight wars. But just the, the, the stature and prestige of America upheld the existing order. And I think what happened in the Middle East is that stature and prestige was weakened uh, 
dramatically during the Obama administration. So the feeling with, with Trump coming in, his history uh, of what he said about Iran, the feeling that he was a, he's the type of person who would not take provocations lying down, uh, and the quality of the people around him elevated the credibility of the American deterrent. So, so psychology matters, and I, think, and I think that has already made a tangible difference, followed up with the very tangible statements that have been made. We're also talking about a president who's been very clear that he's, uh, that he's been against the kinds of ways that the United States has been getting involved in the region over the last decade and a half. I guess, Mohammed, if I can ask you, what are the different, what are the different ways that the Trump administration can show practically that it is, that it is eager again in maintaining U.S. prestige? What are the different, what are some of the different items that are important in the Gulf that are important in Riyadh, uh, Yemen, Syria? What are, what are some of the issues? If you can um, talk about that. Touch that. And again, specific stuff. Oh. Sure. I just wanted to speak sure. uh, yeah, to the formal question a little bit. Uh, I mean, sure, it's been a month, and, and uh, there are several years and, and, and many months left in this administration. Lots can happen. But what we can see right now is if you look at the people around Trump, they've all had very clear um, uh, positions on Iran. They've all been very vocal um, on their positions on the Middle East, on reinforcing uh, 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 alliances and, and, and then bolstering them. Um, a very clear and powerful indication is the statement that was released after um, uh, the ballistic missile that was uh, right. okay. uh, uh, launched. I mean, so it's very clear what direction um, uh, they're going. And not to answer your question afterwards, okay. I mean, Syria is still uh, very confusing. We still don't know what the administration is going to do on Syria. I mean, the last phone call with um, uh, uh, King Salman, um, uh, the transcript that was released by the Americans said that they agreed on, on safe zones in Syria. I can't imagine what a safe zone in Syria would be other than a no-fly zone. How will that play out with the Russians? Um, right. Will um, uh, Trump succeed in creating a rift um, uh, between uh, the Russians and the Iranians? Uh, these are all questions that remain to be answered. But the fact that it's being sp uh, that the, the right. Syrian issue is being spoken about this way is reassuring to many actors in the region. I mean, you know, 500,000 people are dead right. as a result of U.S. inaction. And every year, uh, officials for, um, from uh, Turkey, from Saudi Arabia, have been lobbying the administration here for an off-fly zone, uh, for some policies to um, uh, decisively stop um, uh, Assad's uh, massacres, essentially, of his own right. people. And every year, essentially, the, 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 the answer was, you know, it's too late now. Last year, this was the answer, right. but we can't do it now. Right. It's always been the answer, uh, and, and we'll see, I guess. Well, it comes back to what Mike was speaking about a little bit before, how, what, how, this, how the apparent contradiction between uh, ostensible Iran policy and what looks to be Russia policy, how it gets resolved. Mike, do you want to speak about that in a little more detail, or...? My my read on what uh, President Trump is doing, uh, I look. I, I don't have any uh, any more insight to this than, than anybody else. But I I I think that his big lessons in how to deal with other countries come from his experience in business, uh, and in particular in the real estate business in New York, where you know he's one of uh, 10, 12 big real estate families, and uh, you. You are in a rivalry with these families. You're saying this because this is the article I'm writing next. Uh, yeah, I stole this idea from Lee. I thought I thought if I did it here in public, you know, he wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't out me. But okay, you know, uh, good poets borrow, great poets steal. Lee, thank you. Uh, so uh, the uh, the um, no, but I think it's a you know it's a businessman's approach. He knows he has to deal with other uh, with other businessmen who with whom he's in a rivalry. 
right? And uh, he's going to have to sit down and talk uh, and talk to the guy. So he doesn't want to spoil personal relations. But the the key uh, the the key is not the personal relations. The key is the terms of the deal uh, that that that's under discussion. And while he's making these sweet statements about. Uh, uh, about uh, Vladimir Putin, he's he's increasing his leverage over over Russia in the region by pushing back against the uh, the Iranians and discussing this issue of the of the safe zones. I mean, what what President one of the one of the, the great sins, and there are many, of President Obama's Middle East policy was that he left American allies out exposed before Russian power. Right, the if you the the Turks, for instance, right, the Turks, uh, the Turks found themselves uh, uh, exposed with respect to the Russians when the uh, after they shot down a Russian uh, after they after they shot down a uh, a Russian fighter, the United States did not come in in support of them. Uh, the, the 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 American forces immediately blamed the Turks. Uh, or, or they took the, the Russian took a, side. They publicly the took a narrative. publicly took a publicly took a neutral position on the uh, on the conflict between the Russians and and the Turks. But privately, uh, the White House uh, the the White House briefed all of the papers in saying that Erdogan was leading NATO into a, into a horrible uh, horrible conflict. Right. This is at a moment when the Russians are challenging the NATO frontier all the way from the Baltic down to the uh, uh, down to Turkey. So what did that that gave Erdogan no choice but to go make a beeline to Moscow and try to change relations with with Russia because he realized he didn't have the Americans to back him up. Same thing with the Israelis, right? The Israelis are looking now in fear as the Iranians, after the Iranians and the Russians sew up the north of the country, they're going to come down and they're going to they're going to set up shop on the on the Golan. Um, what what choice did the what choice did the Israelis have? None. That Netanyahu was had is gone. I know some five times to Moscow uh, and had to set up a deconfliction mechanism with the, a bilateral deconfliction me mechanism with the with the uh, with the Russians. So each into each ally of the United States had to make a separate deal with with Putin, exposed to you know threats from Putin, basically a a, a, a tacit threat. Had to had to come up with a special individual deal with him without the support of the of the United States. The mere discussion now by the Trump administration of safe zones, which is something that the, that the Russians hate, even though we don't know where they're going to be uh, and, and so on, is a, is a way of, of telling Putin again, no, or telling our allies, no, now you have United States power behind you. That's a, that's a huge shift in the, in the balance of power. And I would note that Mike Pompeo today, as we're speaking, the, the, the director of the CIA, uh, is in uh, is in Turkey trying to patch things up with 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 Erdogan. Uh, so you, you know, as Mohammed mentioned, that uh, that the guys around Donald Trump are all singing a similar tune. And Mike Pompeo, when he uh, when he took when he was uh, tapped to be director of the CIA, you all saw the tweet where he said, "I look forward to dismantling the horrible Iran nuclear." Uh, nuclear deal, and we all know the New York Times can say, "Oh, there's no change in the policy," but we all know that James Mattis was relieved early from his position as Commander CENTCOM because President Obama didn't like the aggressive position he was taking on the Iranians. Right? Somehow, this is all just gets forgotten now. But uh, I mean, it all sends one 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 very unified message to the uh, uh, to the region, which means big change. Um, Ali, what are what do you imagine or what do you know the government? Uh 
the government in Riyadh is telling the Trump administration, whether it's the president himself, whether it's, uh, whether it's different Saudi officials, what are they saying? They say, like, well, great, you're saying this, you're saying that. We need help on this. We want help on this. You know, you're the superpower. You make your own call. But if you're asking us what the region looks like, here's what it looks like and here's what we need help on. What's your – I'm going to see this to Mohammed. One would have to, one would have to uh, guess, I guess, I guess. But at this, it's early days for that. I think it's early days. And I think uh, already the Trump, uh, as I said, the administration has delivered a lot. In that sense, in terms of in terms of the deterrent uh, impact of America's posture, um, I think another factor when you when you follow on the uh, the, the Russian angle, uh, I don't think that the Russian angle really will be a, a huge player as far as Saudi Arabia's direct interests are concerned, because for Saudi Arabia, you know, Syria was important, but Yemen is critical, and and. Uh, that's, and it drew a red line in Yemen. It had to go to war to defend that red line. Um, uh, a red line has not been drawn in Syria, and I think Syria is probably going the other way. Uh, and I don't think, and ultimately, so what do you mean by the other way? I mean, in the, in the sense that the Russians and the and the and the Iranians and the Syrian regime have taken the upper hand, and uh, whether the, whether whether America is going to make an effort to reverse that, I doubt at this stage. But I think where Saudi Arabia draws a, is a critical red line was Iranian expansion into Yemen. Okay. And, and the whole discussion with the previous administration was also their perspective on it, uh, whether, whether you believed that the Iranians were coming in or you didn't believe that the Iranians were coming in. And, and even when the Iranian government came out and said, we control four Arab capitals, including Sana'a, there was still skepticism on behalf of the American authorities. I think already you feel, and you've, you've heard it from General Flynn, that the Americans are on message as far as Yemen is concerned. So to that extent... Um, to that extent, uh, there isn't that much that, that should be said. There, se there seemed to be a confluence in, in terms of understanding with the administration so far. Mohammed, we, we've spoken about this a little bit. Uh, I think that there's, I think probably because the Obama administration was not uh, particularly focused on Yemen, it seems to me that there are different, uh, different misunderstandings with the nature of the Houthis and the Iranian support. I think there's Lots of people are saying, look, there's not that much support, there's not that much going on, but I think that you have a different, uh, your, your explanation of this is different. Would you like to? Sure. Um, I mean, Iran controls 47 Shia militias in Iraq. Some of them it controls um, uh, uh, almost fully and on a day-to-day -day basis, and some of them it controls less. So if you look at its control over the Houthis in comparison to um, uh, its control of Hezbollah, certain uh, uh, militias in Iraq, sure, it might not have the largest amount of control against the Houthis for operation reasons or, or, or things like that. For example, just to give an example for it, from what I hear um, from quite credible sources in the region, the, the Iranians didn't want uh, the Houthis to march on Sana'a, let alone march on Aden. Mm. What they wanted to create is uh, another Hezbollah, a Hezbollah model whereby you have uh, a strong paramilitary force that's parallel to the state uh, that they can use as a prod against uh, a Saudi-backed government uh, in Sana'a. The Houthis got very excited, went, uh, marched on Sana'a, then marched on Aden, which is, which is pretty nuts if you think about it, because, I mean, so you have southern separatists that are not going to accept rule by northernmost uh, um, uh, tribesmen uh, in the south. So that wasn't the smartest thing. They lost Aden very quickly. Uh, but 
I mean, it shows you how there is, there can be divergence uh, in planning between the Houthis and the Iranians. But when you look at logistical support, I mean, you get training uh, uh, in Lebanon for some Houthi fighters by Hezbollah. Uh, you have Iranian commanders coming in to train uh, Houthi fighters. Uh, uh, you have uh, Iranian missiles um, uh, being lobbed in Saudi Arabia, Zilzal 3, Zilzal 4. Like, for example, the missile that was sent, uh, that was, uh, uh, that targeted Mecca was a repurposed ground-to-air missile. Uh, Russian ground-to-air missile that was made ground-to-ground, uh, and it's mostly the U.S. Um, uh, U.S. Uh, vessels in, in, in the Gulf of Aden that are uh, uh, catching the Iranian shipments. And you know, they say for every rat you find, there are 50 under the rug. I mean, who, who knows how much um, uh, 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 weaponry has reached the Houthis? And you know, in the beginning of the conflict, many people would ask me, how do you think the Yemen conflict would end? I would say there are two ways, you know. There's political uh, dialogue, there's uh, uh, military defeat, but there's also a third way, which is they'll run out of ammunition. You know, um, but that hasn't happened. They've been getting replenished at an extremely high. Now, by, the, the, by the Iranians. By the Iranians. Uh, and also, I think everybody um, uh, underestimated the amount of uh, ammunition and weapons that Ali Abdullah Saleh has been accumulating over, uh, over many, many years. Mm. Um, my I mean, if I, if I, if I can uh, just uh, add to that. You know, it's, it's very funny, but we've had for five years a debate in America and in Western media about Iranian involvement in Yemen. And when the Houthis took over, also they, they were able to take over large stocks of weapons that, they, that the Yemeni military controlled. So the issue wasn't so much weapons, although in certain specialized areas it was. But what Iran has become has been the main ally, well, the only real ally, the only substantive ally that the Houthis have. And you can see that in their training, you can see that in their tactics, you can see that in the highly sophisticated media capability they have. And by the way, if you, if you go and look back at Lebanon and Hezbollah, Hezbollah developed very early on a very sophisticated media capability. When you look at the Houthis, when they, when they mount, you know, pinprick operations, they try to break into Saudi Arabia, the media angle is, as, is much more important than the, than the actual event. And their capability is very advanced. That's all Hezbollah. Yes, so, so you see Hezbollah's footprints all over the place. So the point isn't, and by the way, uh, that's not to say that the Iranians would not have sent arms. One of the things that Saudi Arabia did when it, when it started the war was to, was to re it wanted to reduce the flow of arms from, from um, you know, a, a torrent or a river to a trickle. And it did that by closing down the airports. The Iranians suddenly uh, developed a daily flight from Iran to Sana'a. Now, there's no tourism between Iran and, 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 uh, and Yemen. There's certainly no commercial activity. And the Iranians certainly don't have spare capacity with, air, with their airline uh, industry. Uh, they, they were very short of planes. But suddenly, a daily flight started to take place. Uh, and what was that for? Well, that was obviously to create to, to, to <coughs> a pipeline. So by, by hitting the airports and by blockading the ports, what Saudi Arabia's In fact, Saudi Arabia had two main objectives. And let me, that's, I think that's important to say in the, in the war in Yemen. The main objective was to reduce the flow of arms from a, from, you know, from, from a broadband to a little, to a little uh, copper line, really. So it, it, the, the idea was to push the Iranians from being able to very easily deploy and, and, and send weapons and assistance to forcing them to smuggle through small boats and through the Omani border. And that has been achieved. Uh, the second one was to send a message to the Houthis that if you want to ally to Iran, there will be a high price. And that has also been achieved. Mm. So yes, the overall objective was was to bring back um, uh, the legitimate government, but the on-the-ground practical objectives were these two, and they have been achieved. 
So I think that, that um, it depends on how you want to look at Iranian involvement. And whenever uh, that issue is raised, sort of the, the other side will come and say, well, the Iranians don't control the Houthis in Yemen, or the Iranians don't have, you know, absolute control of them. That's not the case. They don't have to have absolute control. They are the principal ally of the Houthis in Yemen. And, and, and they have made a difference. And they will continue to make a difference if they are allowed. And if the, if the embargo breaks down, or if the, if, if, if the embargo really on, on the, on arms shipments break down, then, then there will be a flood of Iranian support coming in. That's why that has to be maintained post any seat. Uh, peace settlement. And the world community will have to come in and participate to make sure that there's a cordon sanitaire around Yemen uh, that does not al allow the Iranians to uh, to up the volume of their assistance. Look, I think this is a very important point because um, yeah. well, I just want to say very quickly at the moment, it's a very important point because we still see, we still see more than three decades after the founding of Hezbollah, we still see that people deny any connection between Iran and Hezbollah, including in major American publications. And so, by the way, this is after... Yes. They deny that after Hassan Nasrallah comes out right, publicly and says, I am a servant of, of the... Of Wilayat al-Faqih. Right. So he comes out and says it, and as right. you say, I think it's very important it. to make this clear. Mohammed, you were going to... Yeah, no, I just wanted to add uh, one last thing about this link. Uh, it's funny how all of uh, uh, the Houthis' uh, PR operation is run out of uh, Beirut. The design of the, the um, uh, uh, posters that they use, um, a lot of their literature, all of that is done in Beirut uh, by Hezbollah and, and firms that are there. They're just sent to Yemen and printed there. This is, this is how it's run. From A to Z, it's all done in Beirut. That's where the Iranians yeah. control it all. all right. um, Mike, I want to turn this around for one second. What I've been asking, what, uh, what allies in the Gulf, what Saudi would like to have from the Trump administration, what do you think the next administration <clears throat> is telling its allies, and what does it want from its allies? Saudi Arabia, what's it saying to Saudi Arabia right now? Um, I think the the... I, I think the initial statement wasn't what we want from from allies so much as a reassertion, like I said, of of, of American primacy. Where it's going to where it's going to get, I think, uh, most complex um, is the the question of ISIS. Clearly, the uh, the top priority of the administration um, after this reassertion of American. Um, primacy and uh, uh, intention to push back against Iran, that the top priority is to is to destroy ISIS. I mean, the president said eradicate in uh, in his state of the in in, in his inaugural uh, address. Um, so that means that means a, a military operation in the first instance in in, in Mosul and Raqqa, uh, and that that's where it gets complex because. Uh, the 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 key question is, what's the political order after after the? It's not hard for the United States military to kill twenty thousand nasty guys with pickup trucks. The, the 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 problem is, what political order comes afterwards, and uh, particularly in Iraq, this is one of the trump cards that the Iranians have had, and the Iranians through these mechanisms, these Hezbollah-like mechanisms that. Uh, um, that my colleagues have been discussing here, uh, the Iranians have positioned themselves to be the arbiters of any uh, of any post-conflict settlement. Um, so I think what 
what's going to be on the top of the agenda with the Saudis in the conversations today between Mike Pompeo and uh, and um, and the Erdogan government. It's going to be what what's that post? What's that? First of all, the military operation itself, but then at the, what's the post? conflict order look like? And that is the $64,000 question. How about, how about if we figure out, how about, because Mohammed and I have spoken about this a bit, and I'm sure, Ali, you have ideas too, and I'll ask you both, but how about before we even get to that order, in terms of how are the, if we're just asking, if we're talking about ISIS, and we're just asking uh, for Sunni tribes or Sunnis to engage on what is effectively a Sunni civil war, then we don't get to that to that post-conflict order, right? So how do how do we get to that place where ISIS is ISIS is sidelined? Mohammed, again, I know that you were talking about this a bit the other night in in in, uh, in relation to the no-fly zone and some other things. So if you want to, so the thing is, I mean, we should be looking at ISIS like a parasite. Um, you can attack a parasite head-on. And it becomes very weak, but then it will grow again. You need to alter the environment in which the parasite lives in order to, to get rid of it. And that environment is one where there are uh, uh, indiscriminate uh, uh, barrel bombs falling on uh, Syrian civilians and where you have the Hajj al-Shaabi in Iraq uh, uh, slaughtering Sunnis on suspicion that they might be related to somebody that could be in Daesh. You know, uh, for the first time in four years, if you go to the people in Iraq, the, the question we need to ask each, uh, each other is, why do the people in Al-Raqqa don't revolt against ISIS? There's no popular support for ISIS in Al-Raqqa, but they tolerate it. And there's a reason that they tolerate it. For the first time in four years, Assad's barrel bombs aren't falling on the neighborhoods in which these people live. You can send your kid to the corner store to get some milk and eggs without worrying that uh, a barrel bomb will take out the entire uh, block. Now, there's a trade-off. You have to uh, cover your wives and sisters. You have to hide the bottle of scotch that you were drinking and, uh, and stop smoking cigarettes. Uh, so and 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 you have to uh, uh, withstand the tyranny of their their Hezbollah police. It's a miserable life, but it's life nonetheless, and that's why they operate. So when people argue that Assad must be removed in order for ISIS to be defeated, this is this is the precise cause. Now, if he isn't removed, at least no fly zone is is um, uh, implemented. This social contract between ISIS and the people in Raqqa will have to be altered inevitably. You, they can't say we're selling you protection from Assad when there are no uh, there is no capability for sending the barrel bombs. Uh, and the same thing with uh, Iraq. I mean, uh, uh, Sunni civilians in Mosul and, and, and Sunni areas in Iraq uh, are being uh, uh, displaced by Kurds. They're being displaced by um, uh, Shias. And I mean, if you look at uh, uh, the conduct of some of these Shia militias and compare it to the conduct of ISIS, I see no difference whatsoever in the barbarity. You have this uh, figure, Abu Israel, that fights um, uh, with the Shia militias in Iraq, uh, uh, slaughtering, um, um, cutting up a Sunni uh, accused of being uh, uh, tied, with, uh, tied to ISIS over, over a fire, like a kebab. And then you have ISIS burning the Jordanian pilot um, uh, in a cage. What's the difference between cutting up somebody like a kebab? I'm sorry for these these awful um, uh, images I'm putting in your head. And 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 what ISIS is doing? It's it's one and the same, and they fuel each other. So you need to um, uh, have a, a, a state that is is reflective of of, um, of the demographics in Iraq and and, and respects um, a non-sectarian state. And and ideally, that's to remove Iranian influence. That's going to be very difficult now because it's entrenched. But you remove the threat to the Shia militias, then ISIS will have nothing to protect um, um, uh, uh, the Sunnis um, uh, there from. And the same thing happens in Syria. You need to alter these um, uh, dynamics on the ground. In order Can to I make, make a point? Yes. Uh, you know, as the discussion moves to ISIS, 
there's a lot that the Iranians have, have been marketing their, their role for the last few years as critical to fighting ISIS. And, and there's a discussion now about whether the Iranian Revolutionary Guard will get designated as a terrorist organization. And, and, and actually, when you look beyond the hype, the Iranians have been the biggest beneficiaries from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. First of all, ISIS and Al-Qaeda do not threaten Iran. They, don't have, they can't get market share in Shia Iran. You see, their, their, their attempt to grab market share is in Sunni lands. That's number one. The Iranians have very cynically worked with Al-Qaeda uh, after 9-11, uh, hosted their leaders, allowed them to move into Iraq, and they and the Syrians have very cynically worked, worked with ISIS. Uh, so the arguments in the press today that if you designate the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, you will lose Iran as an ally in the fight against ISIS is a total fallacy. Is that, really, is that really what the argument is? Can I just finish that argument? Because it's a total fallacy because Iran will fight those to the degree that it needs to fight them. For example, in Mosul, because it wants a corridor to, 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 to Lebanon. It wants to secure that area. But otherwise, the Iranians have pursued a very cynical policy of using ISIS to, to cause disruption in, Sun, in, in the Sunni parts of the region and using them as an excuse, a raison d'etre, to justify their behavior. Uh, so I think that the, the, the whole argument that says Iran is an ally fighting terrorism is actually flawed. Right. Mike, did you want to say something about this, about this argument over the uh, potential designation of IRGC. I know we talked about this a little bit before. Do you have much to? Uh, uh, I, don't, I see. I don't understand why we haven't done it. I don't see any good. When I was in the Bush administration, we we teed it up. When I was in the right. Bush White House, we teed it up. I never understood. Uh, I never got clarity on why the decision was never made. There was a decision made to designate the Quds Force, right. uh, but uh, there was some there was some uh, there was some calculation. Um, whenever you go to make these designations, right, there, uh, people, uh, people are, uh, people come up with 17 different reasons why, why it's, you know, it's going to alienate this one, that one, this is not going to work, and that one's not going to work. I don't know of any designation that has ever led to the kind of, uh, the kind of, uh, difficult results that have, that have been, um, uh, that have been uh, foreseen. But I, I don't, I don't know why we, we haven't done it. It makes no sense to me. We all know what the IRGC is. And uh, and we all know how uh, how deeply embedded the IRGC is in the Iranian economy, right? right? So it would have a great chilling effect on uh, on business with Iran, um, which uh, which I, I see as a good thing. Uh, right. So uh, I'd love to see it. Right. Um, let me ask. So you guys are saying that the uh, the Riyadh is very happy with the way that things are looking with the with the Trump administration. So I have to ask you. What about the executive order that uh, suspends at least for for 90 days the issuance of visas to citizens from seven majority Muslim states? Is this a problem for Riyadh? Are they going like, great, the administration really put us on the hotspot. We're the guardian of the two holy shrines, and now they're attacking what even Americans are out in the street are calling a Muslim ban. Is that a problem? Ahmed, do you want to... Sorry to, put, sorry to put you in the hot spot first, but why not? You're closest. Look, any ban that's based uh, on religious lines or ethnic lines will be frowned upon not only by Riyadh or um, uh, uh, by countries in the region, but people everywhere. 
Uh, if I were to take what the Trump administration is saying at face value, what they're saying is, first of all, that this isn't a Muslim ban. This is seven countries that were designated by the Obama administration, and that this is um, uh, a temporary. Right now, it's not in effect, so it's, it's uh, irrelevant. Uh, but um, uh, if that were the case, it's a temporary ban until mechanisms are put in place through which uh, uh, more extensive vetting um, uh, is... Uh, you mentioned this in your article in uh, the Weekly Standard recently right. as well. I mean, these mechanisms do exist with countries in the Middle East like Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. You mean like how uh, we countries. communicate? Exactly. Right. You communicate with pre-clearance and all these things. Right. So, I would say if you take all of these things at face value, uh, you have to look at uh, the region. I mean, concerns with U.S. foreign policy, if you look at the list of concerns with U.S. foreign policy, I'm very sure that this ban is, is very uh, on the bottom of the list. People have lost, lost relatives in Syria where 500,000 people have been slaughtered, 11 million people displaced. Iraq right now is not a functional state. Yemen, uh, uh, people are starving and, and, and uh, uh, this war is... is uh, uh, really uh, uh, taking a toll on, on, on the Yemeni people and uh, on other parties involved. Uh, you have shipments of arms being sent to Bahrain. I mean, there are much bigger, much more pressing issues in the Middle East than, than this one here. I understand why it's making a lot of uh, uh, noise in the United States. It's one that's accessible to a lot of people in the public. It's a very polarizing issue. But if you go to Riyadh and if you go to the region, uh, you won't find everybody in coffee shops talking about nothing but this Muslim ban. You know, it's right. not as big as it is here in the United States. Right. That's, uh, that's interesting. Ali, did you want to... I mean, the interest interesting thing that came out of all of this as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned was the discussions in the media and among, you know, sort of Iranian elements also, is why is Saudi Arabia not on the ban? Uh, because 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis, uh, why have they not been on the ban? And really, what, what people don't realize is, yes, 15 of the 19 were Saudis, but that Bin Laden Al-Qaeda had done put them on purpose to, to puncture and destroy a 60-year strategic relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. To the credit of the George Bush, Bush W administration and the Obama administration above that, they didn't fall into that trap. So what happened after 9-11, understanding the tactics of Al-Qaeda, is the security relationship between America and Saudi Arabia developed so closely. Uh, I'll give you an example, for example, a practical example why Saudi Arabia is different from other countries on the ban. Saudi Arabia has put in place a digital national identity card system which Americans have debated for a long time about having, but libertarians have stopped it. Uh, so it has, it, it, today, the, the, the the, it has put in place a technology and monitoring and information system. And that has also hooked that in with the Americans, for example, as far as visas and airline. Right. Uh, on advanced passenger information. So, exactly. So, so, so first of all, the, the, an American ambassador told me two years ago, um, a former American ambassador in Riyadh, he said, Ali, the U.S.-Saudi relationship today is security relationship is the closest in the world. He said it's closer than the UK and it's closer than Israel. Now, maybe there's a bit of hyperbole there, but I can tell you that it's in the top five. And that very close security relationship happened post 9-11 to make sure that the people would not take advantage of that again. So there is a practical reason as to why Saudi Arabia it was not on the ban, aside from the fact that it's an ally of the United States. There are under security underpinnings that justify that. Right, in which we don't have with the seven states that are... You don't have it with the failed states. Of terror you certainly don't have it with the Revolutionary Guard, which doesn't want to... would not be sharing information with you. Nonetheless, Mike, if I can... without getting... without having to get... Um, get too far down into domestic politics, look, insofar as this administration was looking to start things off uh, anew in the region and recognized very clearly how many mistakes the Obama administration made. Is this uh, a, a blunder in that way, that it makes it harder 
to it makes it harder to work with, for instance, Turkey, where you know where uh, where uh, CIA Director Pompeo is today, or does it make it harder to work with Saudi Arabia or Egypt? Is it a is it a misstep in, in that way? I think it was. Uh, uh, I think it could have been handled a lot better uh, from that point of view. I mean, uh, you'll have to. The administration will have to weigh. You know, they wanted to. Uh, they wanted to send a signal uh, to the to the people who voted for them. They wanted to send a signal to the bureaucracy uh, that things were going to be done differently and so on. And they wanted to send it a, a loud, clear one right from the beginning. They'll have to wear that uh, to some of the. Um, what I see is sort of needless, um, uh, needless impediments they put in their own uh, path with foreign governments. I suspect less with the Middle Eastern governments than, say, like in Britain. I mean, you right. see that in Britain now the the um, the Speaker of the Parliament is saying that that, uh, that that Donald Trump shouldn't be allowed to address Parliament and everything, and, and signing the signing the the immigration ban specifically and. Um, I don't, uh, given the importance of everything that's going on in the bilateral U.S.-British relationship, wh why, uh, wh why throw out that needless, you know, extraneous voltage in this direction and that? Why hand people, uh, why, why hand people a, a, a club with which to hit you? Um, there's that, and then there's the, uh, the emerging um, narrative in the, in, in the media uh, about um, uh, about the Trump administration, I mean, it's, cl it's clear to me that the the Democrats want to bring this administration down. They're looking for an opportunity. Uh, hopefully, if they can get to the point where they where they could start an impeachment uh, proceeding, and they're they're building the narrative from uh, from day one. Uh, so you know that you've got that kind of virulent opposition that's not going to go away. I, I would be careful about handing them uh, if, handing if I, them the need, needless clubs. That's I mean, if I if I can add a point, look. I don't think anybody, any expert in this field, uh, sees an action like the ban as increasing American security. I think it, 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 it probably doesn't. It probably will have an opposite uh, reaction. But it's domestic politics. And I think to an extent people understand that, and people understand that, it's, that it will, it will, it will you know, uh, be tempered in the coming weeks and months. But, but uh, per se, to, 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 to take an action that is associated with, with Muslims is, not, is nothing that, um, that anybody, with, including the governments in the region, would have, would have encouraged the American administration to do had they asked. Really. Um, let's talk about something else which we've kind of been speaking about a little bit. You and I, Mike, we, we, we were up here the last several years often talking explicitly about or almost about the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So what does, what does Saudi Arabia want to have happen right now with the Iran nuclear deal? Does it want to see it crashed? Does it want to see heavily enforced? Does it want to see the master of the art of the deal renegotiate the deal? What, what does Riyadh want to see happen? Mohammed, if I can start with you. I mean, uh, Riyadh has always been overtly um, uh, supportive of the deal. Uh, what, and they haven't really shown um, deep uh, uh, concerns uh, over the way it was set up. So the problem essentially with the Iran nuclear deal is it trades a vast uh, majority of sanctions for only uh, nuclear restrictions. And that inherently ignores 
why nuclear Iran is dangerous in the first place? Why aren't we making a deal with a nuclear Pakistan? Why aren't we making a deal with a nuclear India? And the people would come back and say, well, because there's a laundry list of, of nefarious activity that Iran is uh, uh, responsible for in the region. Nobody really is worried that Iran would use a nuclear weapon, but they're worried about what Iran would do with uh, a nuclear weapon added to their uh, defense architecture. Do you want it, to talk about your article where you said that basically the deal is the... So, yeah, the, essentially, yeah. I, I wrote an article. They chose a very bombastic title for it, which is the Iran deal is Iran's nuclear bomb. It wasn't that uh, bombastic. But uh, essentially what, what the deal and its current configuration adds to Iran's uh, defense architecture is what a nuclear bomb would have added. I mean, when you see Obama backtracking on a red line in order to protect the nuclear deal, uh, you're seeing Iran being dealt with like a country with a nuclear weapon with uh, the defense architecture that a nuclear weapon would have lent it. And this is the main problem uh, with the nuclear deal. Now, uh, when it was planned, you'd hear a lot uh, about, you know, uh, bringing Iran out in from the cold and making it a member uh, of the international community and giving economic incentives will cause the IRGC to change or the, the moderates to be uh, empowered and the hardliners to be weakened. I don't really buy this moderates versus hardliners argument. I think it's a one-stop shop uh, response for, for any criticism that Iran uh, receives. You know, uh, no matter what it does, the response is, well, yes, we're the moderates. You empower us against the hardliners and everything will be okay. And it never happened. It never happened. Um, uh, Iran is not um, uh, friendly to the United States. I mean, if you look at the Marines that were uh, arrested, they, they arrested um, uh, U.S. Marines, put them on their knees, and said they cried uh, when the IRGC uh, arrested them, but were soothed after they saw uh, the kindness of the IRGC. I mean, if you're if you're going to be friendly friendlier with a country and sign a nuclear deal with it, and their ships break down next to the waters, you send sandwiches and engineers. You don't um, uh, arrest them and put them on fast news. Yeah. So um, I think uh, the, it was wishful thinking. Iran didn't become a more responsible member of the international community. And I personally am not against a deal. I'm just against this deal and its current configuration. I mean, because it released a lot of funds that have been used to, to destabilize Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen. And it didn't um, push so what, happens a more actor. what happens I mean, now? And also people your opinion about, and what do you think that sure. what do you think from, from what I understand people, people look at two uh, uh, scenarios one where the nuclear deal is, is teared up I, I don't think this is um, uh, 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 that this is uh, this is very likely and I would be against it actually because if the U.S. unilaterally tears up the deal with Iran, they're not going to be, to be able to push the Europeans to reimpose uh, uh, sanctions. So you'll have half a deal that's already in the Iranians' pockets, and you're going to be renegotiating for the other half. Um, the other way is, uh, I've, I've heard, I think you mentioned um, the term enforce it to death, where you just sit yes, down right, and, and wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. wait um, very diligently for, uh, for any uh, 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 violation on the Iranians' part. Um, and the third way is, is to reimpose uh, specific sanctions on, on uh, related to their activity uh, in the region. I don't know how it's going Including to Including non-nuclear stuff. Yeah. Non, no, 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 this was never about the deal. Okay. Uh, it was about association, associated behavior of Iran. It was about Iran's projection of power and undermining... So what do you mean, what was it? You mean Saudi's concerns over the deal? or No, I mean, Sa Saudi Arabia supports, and, and all the Gulf countries support, increased transparency, international controls on the nuclear deal. Anything that, that, that adds international control to Iran's nuclear program is supported. So I think the deal in itself was never something that, that concerned people. It was the associated baggage that came with it. It was the increased freedom that was given to Iran. It was the benefit of the doubt that was extended by the Obama administration 
to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and, 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 and their behavior all over the region. So as long as that is controlled, and as long as that is being watched, uh, the, the, the deal with itself was, was, was not the issue. Really. Right. Mike, what do you think? That, um, I, I'll, I'll probably open it up for questions from the audience in a couple of minutes, but I, I definitely want to get your sense of where you think the, the, future, <laughs> the future of the JCPOA is and what, what you think our regional partners, including Saudi Arabia, are likely to be telling <clears throat> the White House at this point. I have a slightly different, uh, slightly different view. I, I, I think that they were uh, more troubled by the deal itself than than they let on. Um, I think everyone in the in the world, except Benjamin Netanyahu, um, read this deal as uh, in the following way. Uh, they, they said, President Obama wants this deal. It's his top priority in foreign policy. There's nothing that I can do to stop him, uh, and uh, and so uh, my my choice is to try to stop him and fail and have the largest power on earth angry with me, or to pretend I like it. Uh, and, and so that's what that's what everybody except Benjamin Netanyahu did. They said uh, they said, oh oh, it's wonderful, right? Or or you know we we we, we support it. And then Netanyahu went. Around, I mean. Uh, what was his name? I forgot. Uh, Obama. He went around and said uh, to the um, he said to the world, "Oh, you know, okay. we're, just, we're just listening to the world. The world wants this, and this is why we're why we're doing it." Uh, uh, so, and and the problem that everyone uh, uh, that everyone in the Middle East has with with the deal, the the number one problem is the sunset clause. Uh, because the 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 deal assures the Iranians that if they just adhere to it, um, it does, the deal does not stop the progress in their in their nuclear program. It just it just slows it in certain areas and 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 and, and puts it down certain defined area uh, defined lanes. Uh, but it offers them a a, a clear pathway to to uh, to a nuclear program. Uh, to a nuclear to a nuclear weapons program uh, and to international blessing of that uh, uh, of that program and that's that's what's upsetting now that's that's you know between uh, between uh, seven and fourteen years down the line somewhere which is a long time which is a long time and 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 so what the Trump administration is almost certainly going to do. Is, uh, is, is what Mohammed said. They're going to hold Iran's feet to the fire in the, in the first instance. They're going to hold Iran's feet to the fire without ripping up the deal while gaining leverage over the Iranians in the, you know, in, 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 so that when the time comes, they can, they can renegotiate it, get rid of the, get rid of the sunset clause, uh, in, in, in other words. Now, I'm sure that that's the I'm sure that that's the intention. And one of the beautiful things about the Trump administration is that everybody who has responsibility for this file uh, uh, thinks that the sunset clause is a big problem. With with with, with the possible exception of of, of Rex Tillerson, uh, I only say that because I I haven't heard what he said about it. Right. But we know what Mike Pompeo thinks. We know what we we know what Jim Mattis thinks. We know what Donald Trump himself thinks. He's the most important person here, and so on. So 
that's, a, that's, that's very different from the attitude of the Obama administration. They all want to get rid of the sunset clause. Now, okay, there's a little bit of a risk. That, that that's where you think it's going, that they want to push them to get back in to renegotiate, especially the sunset clause. They want to get rid that's of the what, sunset okay. clause. They want to gain leverage over the Iranians across the board. Donald Trump is a negotiator. He knows that sitting down and starting to talk to them right now without any leverage isn't a good way to do it. The, the, only, the, risk? Only, the risk is that look, if you look at the Bush administration, look at the Obama administration, um, there are great differences in the way that they framed the Iran issue. The, George W. Bush framed it much more like Donald Trump does uh, the Iranian nuclear issue. Uh, uh, but yet there's a kind of continuity in, in between the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and it pains me to say this. Uh, but the, the continuity is that we, we, kick the, we kick the can down the road. Right, the, the 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 nuclear deal is the proverbial issue that is extremely important, perhaps the most important thing. The nuclear program, the most important thing, but it's never the urgent thing. There's always something that has to be done today. ISIS, uh, the Houthis, what, 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 whatever it is, uh, negotiations with, with with Russia. And so a president wakes up and says, "Am I going to make a big decision on the Iranian nuclear deal today? No, I'll do it. I'll do it next week. Oh no, I'll do it next week." What President Obama did with with the with the with the nuclear deal was that the entire nuclear deal is just kicking the can down the road because it because it delays the you know it it, it delays a, a, the the appearance of the Iranian bomb for ten to fifteen years right so the, he just put a big bow he delays it until the end and the end of the sun until the sunset clauses the sun, he, he he delays it until until just after his successor so it'll be laid at somebody else's feet right so uh, and he can claim that he stopped it when he didn't when he when he didn't when he didn't actually do that i hope that the trump administration will not fall into that into that trap. Into but, saying, but the priorities are immediate. In other words, the priorities of the, of the Gulf countries are immediate. What you don't want to do is get into an, a dialogue with the Iranians over the sunset clause, giving them margin to, to continue. Uh, oh, uh, no, I, I, I agree. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. Right. He, I, I totally agree. Because you don't want to replay of right. the... Of I don't, I know, right. I don't disagree with the approach that they're taking of not ripping it up on day one and focusing on the region rather right. than the deal. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying that there is a risk inherent in that approach, which is that you fall into the pattern of the previous administrations of of never, ever getting to the what's wrong with the deal itself. And what if the Iranians say, yeah, um, no, we're not going to renegotiate. We're pretty happy with the way it looks right The United States, now, there's another great thing that, that Barack Obama did, right, a, 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 very, a very clever thing that he did, right, which is that he convinced the entire world through this technique where I said, where he showed everybody that it's his priority. Right, and then every, everyone stood up and said, "Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea." And then he said, "You know, my hands are tied. Everybody wants this. This is why I had to do it. Yeah. Right? If I if I didn't sign this deal, the the, the sanctions regime was going to collapse. Yeah. Right? We can see that's not the case because John Kerry was off in, in Europe after the deal, trying to drum up business for Iran because European businesses didn't want to go do business with Iran because they feared future U.S. sanctions. So we can see that actually it was not about to collapse. Right? But." He convinced, especially liberal Americans, that the United States is, is a very weak and a, a country with, with no influence. It's not true. We're actually a very strong country with a lot of influence over a lot of, uh, over a lot of other countries. And Iran is not a powerful country. So if Iran says no and we say yes, we have methods to change their mind. Get them to yeah. that. Yeah. And we have, the, we have methods to change other, other countries' minds about Iran as well. We have those tools. 
I like it. Um, let's open it up. Let's open up for a couple questions. Thanks. Like, no, that was very. Uh, I, 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 I agree. Um, gentlemen in the back, well, if you would wait a second, because there are people going around with microphones. So if you would wait for the microphone. Yes, this gentleman right here in the blue shirt. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Stan Morgenstein. I'd, I'd like to direct the questions to uh, Muhammad and Ali. And first of all, to say thank you very much for a very informative uh, discussion. Thank you. Um, we heard in 2016 here at the Hudson Institute from a former deputy to the chief of naval operations that uh, the United States has insufficient um, service fleet to be able to put our fleets in the Mediterranean, in the Indian Ocean, et cetera, which is critical from the standpoint of air power and so on. Um, within that context, um, it's my impression that what the panel has been suggesting, at least this is what I uh, have gotten out of it, is that if the U.S. doesn't really push back hard against the Iranians, and not just push back, but when we draw a red line, actually slap their hands if they cross the red line, that is going to come to force. And within that context of the force itself, um, what is your view as to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf State Cooperation Council's willingness as well as ability to put its forces out in front of uh, U.S. forces as well as provide financial assistance in, in financing the, the forces? Hamu, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, from what I know, the U.S. has 12 active duty Air Force carriers, uh, or 11, I think it is, uh, aircraft carriers, yes, uh, and the rest of the world combined has 10. So I don't think um, that um, the U.S. doesn't have enough um, uh, uh, military uh, resources uh, to carry out whatever it likes to plan in the region. Um, Saudi did offer to send ground troops, but it was fudged by um, uh, people in the previous administration. They offered to send ground troops. The Emiratis offered to send ground troops as well. But obviously, I mean, uh, to, Syria? to Syria, yes, uh, that would have to come under pro air protection of the International Coalition to White ISIS. But uh, m marvelously, it wasn't um, uh, covered in the U.S. media. I think that was... Uh, Do you want to talk about that for a second, the Islamic Coalition? Do you want to, I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to give too much detail, but if you just want to talk about it a little more... Um, sure. Um, so what we've seen um, uh, over the past several years is unprecedented. You know, an unprecedented um, level of cooperation between Arab countries that came directly as a reaction to uh, Iranian expansionism and, and destabilization in Iraq and Syria and Yemen, Bahrain, elsewhere. Uh, Arab countries realized that they need to take it upon themselves um, uh, for protection, especially with U.S. disengagement in the region uh, and, and uh, um, uh, the shift that uh, Mike was talking about towards um, uh, traditional adversaries like Iran. And this, I think, will be very beneficial to the current administration because all of this uh, 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 groundwork and all of this uh, organization has already been done. If the U.S. wants to uh, re-engage with its allies and, and uh, double down on its relationship with traditional allies, they're going to find a more organized block in the region that's uh, uh, operationally capable and willing to uh, to get their hands dirty very quickly. That's a nice point. Ali, did you want to, did you have anything? No, I have nothing to add. Okay. Uh, next, well, I'll take another question. Um, one second. Uh, Hillel, we're here. Uh, thanks very much. Um, uh, Hillel Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. 
Um, I, I wanted to go back to a couple of issues that uh, Lee raised. Um, one was the, the notion that there's going to be a new order. Uh, I was wondering what the perspective of Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states is on what that new order would look like. And the other question um, was also raised that there are – the president has expressed um, – the notion that there are some limits on what he would envision the United States being willing to do, and in that sense is a kind of continuation of uh, at least what President Obama, um, the path he followed, and also a certain way of looking at things that he encouraged within the country. So I wonder how those two things go together, but specifically what the Gulf uh, thinks of as what the new orders. I mean, I understand uh, to push back Iran, but what, what else would it mean? Ali, do you want to respond to that? Look, uh, the issue really isn't so much of a new order as upholding the existing order, which was under threat. And I don't think that anybody upholding Iran or keeping Iran in a box uh, as far as its course of capability is concerned does not involve introducing troops on the ground. It involves, in a way, the coercive umbrella that America has, the air power that America has, and again, the political and economic global power that America has to cause pain for Iran if it crosses red lines. So I don't think that there is a disconnect between successive U.S. administrations not wanting to bring troops on the ground again, because that's not on the agenda. And one of the things that's, that got Saudi Arabia into the, into the Yemen war also was a feeling that, that, you know, people keep on saying that the Gulf countries don't want to carry their own weight and want to ask Uncle Sam to come and fight. Well, the Gulf countries started to fight. And part of that is militarizing their, their capabilities. And you only militarize your capabilities, you really, you really only train a military when you go to war. Because that's how you, you turn it from being a parade ground military to being an efficient fighting force. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a fact. So they've done that. So I don't think anybody is, is expecting uh, an, a new administration to, uh, to take on a posture that, that, for example, the Bush administration did with a similar invasion of Iran that they did of Iraq, for example. I don't think that's, that anybody even considers that, nor is that required, nor would that make sense. Thanks. Uh, the gentleman here, if you can wait one second, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz from Inside Iraq. Thank you for a very informative discussion. I, um, I wanted to – I have a, so, two questions for Ali uh, to pick up on, on Michael's sort of post-ISIS uh, scenario for in, in Iraq. The first one is if President Trump or General Flynn or any of his you know, sort of close staff called you and said, look, what – what would you suggest we do in Iraq? What, what would you tell them? And, and I'm thinking, I'm wondering here specifically, given your background in communications, what would you think in terms of sort of anti-ISIS communications and what would you think about perhaps uh, the possibility of some either Gulf or Saudi-backed uh, reconstruction bonds, you know, for Fallujah, Mosul, uh, Ramadi? And the second question, and of course any other better ideas that, that, uh, that you might have, and the second question is, I'm curious about something. You were at HBS, and so was Steve Bannon, and I'm very curious whether the two of you happened to coincide, and if you knew him, whether you might shed any light into how he might see uh, Unfortunately, I didn't meet him. I wish I did. It would have been interesting to know, but no. So then to the first question. Yes. Thank you. Look, what a solution to Iraq would be extending some form of protection to the Sunni community. 
Sunni community has been ethnically cleansed from, cleansed, cleansed from Baghdad and from key parts of Iraq. Um, the question is, who is going to be willing to do that? And that's a million-dollar question, you see. But what, what created the, the fertile ground for jihadism in Iraq was the fact that the, the jihadis were the first ones who really, now, they provoked, you know, this was part of the strategy. They also provoked the Shia. You see, part of, part of ISIS and Qaeda was to go and, 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 and uh, blow up uh, the Shia so that they would hit the Sunni again, and then they would come as they. So, so in a way, they created the problem. But the problem is there because, because the, the Iraqi government fell into that trap. Um, and, and there are no easy answers to that. There are no easy answers to that uh, to the extent that what will the future of Iraq, Iraq look like? Maybe some form of association, you know, or, or, or protection where, where Jordan is used as a vehicle, for example, with a lot of outside support. I, I have an answer concerning reconstruction efforts. First of all, I, would, I, I highly recommend, and maybe he's watching our, our colleague and friend, Tony Bedran, who has a very important article today in Tablet Magazine about a man who appears to be taking a job at the World Bank, Abdullah Dardari, where he appears to be collecting money for the Assad regime's reconstruction efforts. I want to say the United States is not an NGO. The United States should not pay for reconstruction of certain places, especially if it serves the interests of places like the Islamic Republic of Iran. This is outrageous. The United States, and the idea that the United States is going to invest in Iraq and keep in place Iranian security architecture across that country is obscene. So I think the United States, I think this administration has to be very, has to look very closely at what it's going to look like and how this turns out. Uh, how this turns out best for American interest. Certainly what's happened in Iraq and Syria is terrible, and the United States should help in any way possible, but certainly not if it benefits holding in place this Iranian security architecture around the region. Look, the whole, the whole issue of reconstruction, actually, is going to be a very tricky one, because even Gulf governments and the Saudi government, for example, in a way, public opinion in Saudi Arabia started to move economically to a sort of Saudi-first agenda. <laughs> Which is so this idea that you see the Gulf countries as a checkbook for every problem, you know, come to Egypt, come to Pakistan, come to this, come to that, has become very unpopular. Particularly also in some of those countries when, you know, they come and get the money and they come and get the benefits, but when push comes to shove, they start Pakistanis, you needed them in Yemen, Egyptians, all the issues, you know, that, that come up, and they come and start to say they, they, they are not as receptive as you would expect given the huge amount of economic aid that you've given. So I think that the idea that the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia, is going to be a, a, a piggy bank for reconstruction in the Middle East is, is far-fetched. They have other priorities and they have domestic priorities, and, and obviously they have less, less money with the drop in the price of oil. Good. I'm glad to see that changing. Um, the uh, the uh, gentleman in the back there, the maroon sweater. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is uh, Nadir Sadiri. I'm from Radio for Europe. Uh, based on what uh, Mr. Shahabi said earlier, is there any possibility of uh, military confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states? And if so, uh, one, is Iran in a position to enter into that sort of uh, confrontation? And second, how Saudi Arabia is prepared to do that? Thank you. Look, the problem was never overt military confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia or with the Gulf. The Iranians have learned Saddam Hussein's lesson. The Iranians are experts in indirect confrontation. 
They're experts in creating subversive organizations. Hezbollah today is, you know, the Apple computer or the Microsoft of non-state military actors. They've built the best, really. I mean, they're standing up to Israel, which is probably one of the best militaries in the world. So the Iranians have specialized in that. They've done the same in Iraq. They've done the same in Syria. They've even transplanted, you know, Afghani Shia, for example, to come and fight in Syria. They're doing it in Yemen. So the concern is uh, unconventional warfare and taking advantages of fault lines within societies. You know, are there tensions in the Gulf between the Sunnis and Shias? Unfortunately, that has increased, you know, in the last 20 years. Well, it has increased since the Iranian Revolution. So they take advantage of these fault lines. They take advantage of economic fault lines. They took advantage of um, the Houthi uh, domestic <coughs> politics in Yemen. When people talk about Sunni Shia, they forget that Saudi Arabia supported the Zaidi government, the Zaidi royal family, which was Shia. Saudi Arabia got into the Yemen civil war in the 1960s in support of the Yemeni monarchy, which was a Shia monarchy, a Zaidi monarchy. And then when that monarchy was overthrown, the royal family of Yemen was settled in Saudi Arabia and given citizenship in Saudi Arabia. So this issue that Saudi Arabia is fighting an anti-Shia war is nonsense, really. Saudi Arabia is fighting Iranian expansionism, which is not being handled overtly, but very cleverly being handled covertly. And that is the danger. Mohammed, did you want to did you want to add anything to that? That was a great answer. Okay. Um, this, uh, can you bring a microphone up here, the gentleman in the maroon tie? Thanks very much. Um, my name is Austin Luce. I'm an intern here at Hudson. Um, my question is for whichever panelist would care to answer. Uh, how do you think the initial public offering of Aramco uh, could potentially change or affect the Saudi-U.S. security arrangement? Could other Gulf states follow the Saudi example regarding their petroleum interests? And how could developments like that uh, potentially change the Middle Eastern-Western geopolitical dynamic? Mohammed has written a lot about, uh, or, or, or a fair amount about, uh, energy stuff, and I, very, very elegantly, so I'm going to ask him to start off, and um, Ali, if you want to talk about it too. Frankly, I don't think it's related to the security arrangement uh, at all. I mean, what, what um, uh, the Saudis are trying to do, or what they'll tell you they're trying to do, uh, is um, encourage more transparency and efficiency in Aramco by uh, uh, putting its uh, financials out in the open and, and um, uh, putting it out for public scrutiny. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, and that's all part of Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, economic um, uh, transformation plan. Uh, I, I just don't imagine how uh, it would have any bearing on, on security uh, cooperation with the West. Uh, but I could be wrong, I think. I don't know if Ali has any. Uh, I don't, don't agree. I don't disagree with what you say. Uh, gentlemen up here, you can wait one second. We'll wait. Ah, there we go. Uh, hello, my name is Gerald Heng. I, I came from Mas Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we know that an informed public and an informed presidency is very important. Uh, during the time of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, communist people from communist states cannot come here. Sir, can you ask a question? Yeah. Thank you. And now we have a Muslim ban. And we understand what the Muslim ban is all about. It's all about terrorism and all that. When they examined the communist states' entries, they were looking for their ideological armed struggle belief. Uh, 
British communists Sir. And can enter without any problems. Sir, but what I'm saying is... Please ask a question. Yeah, what I'm saying is the question is very straightforward. What I'm asking is, would it be very difficult for the presidency to really examine the ideological beliefs of people coming in from Muslim states uh, uh, to America, either on visa or on refugee or on whatever status? Would it be very difficult, really, to examine their ideological beliefs? Thank look, you. Look, I think there's been a consensus that this whole ban issue is a political move. It doesn't really have practical, it, it's not driven by, by, by practical threats. It's not going to make America safer. But, I've, you know, this is, a, this is fear sells. Fear gets you ratings on television. Fear gets you, and the media has played the role in, 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 in inflating fear of Muslims for the last 15 years. You, you know, 24, homeland, all these things have created, and politicians, because that's their job, they would need to get elected, have learned how to play that game. And it's been played, and it's brought, you know, and, and, and the Trump administration has won the race, partially pressing those buttons. So I think, you know, when, when, and the Trump administration is full of a lot of very, very experienced people. I think that this thing will, will be tempered down after the political gestures have been done. Because really, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. I don't quite see it like that. I do think, as Mohammed was speaking about before, and as we described before, and as you said before, we have relationships. The United States government has relationships with, uh, with various organizations and institutions in many Muslim countries, whether it's Saudi Arabia or whether it's Turkey, whether it's Azerbaijan, and we have good relations and we speak with different people. And I think that, look, I mean, there are most of the people, of course, far and away, the vast majority of people who come here, as Mohammed and I spoke the other night on Iranian passports, these are important people, wonderful people who make terrific contributions to the United States. Nonetheless, there are problems that uh, that the Iranians are sending to the United States. So I don't see it entirely as a political play. But Lee, I wouldn't have thought that the Bush administration and the Obama administration, you know, 15 years after 9-11 hadn't put in the, the, the adequate securities that have been put in. So I think to, to a degree in terms of practical protection, most of that has been done because you're really trying to find an needle in a haystack. It sends a political message. It addresses a domestic constituency. And that's politics. You know, when you have a democratic system, an open system, people have to press certain buttons, and you understand that. But I think over time, that's going to have to be tempered, really. But Uncle Sam has already uh, applied the terror and violent armed struggle strategy to exclude members from or citizens from communist countries, except perhaps Britain, because they have a communist party, but that Communist Party does not advocate armed struggle. Thank you. We're going we're gonna to move to another question. Uh, the gentleman here, you have a question? Yep. Okay. Uh, isn't there an incongruity in expecting aid from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in fighting ISIS uh, when traditionally major funding for ISIS has come from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states? Um, who would you like to, would you, you, like to you know something? I'm sorry, just let me add that because it's an issue I feel a bit strong about. That is actually completely not true. Uh, and, and in effect, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, in, 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 a, in a statement to Congress last summer, 
and was quoted in the New York Times. He said that Saudi Arabia is the world leader in fighting um, terrorist, anti-terrorist financing. So some private money has gone, but you know what? ISIS didn't need contributions. ISIS was a bit like the, the Bolsheviks in Russia. They plundered uh, the, 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 the areas that they controlled. They took advantage of oil. They did smuggling. They sold protection. And they got some private contributions. But after 9-11, after 9-11, the Gulf governments and Saudi Arabia put in place such a stringent uh, uh, mechanism to control that the Americans have said, in effect, it's the best in the world. So there's this image that keeps on being repeated, and when things get repeated, they get a, they get a credibility. But it's blatantly not true anymore. It has, in, in the early days, there was some private capital, but that has been virtually extinguished. The and same Treasury Department report mentions that 5% at most of ISIS funding comes from external sources. So if you really want to attack ISIS financing head-on, the last thing you should be looking at really is external funding, uh, despite the fact, obviously, that there are safeguards in the Gulf um, uh, that, that uh, are, as Ali mentioned. And, and as Mohammed says, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, the whole 9-11 thing, you know, cost a few hundred thousand dollars. So it's not money. This is not the drug trade. People make a mistake between, between, between you know, uh, organized crime where, where, where money laundering drives it. These people, they don't need these huge flows of money, you see. You can buy a few Rolex watches in, in Pakistan and put them in your suitcase and come and sell them in Miami and you have a hundred thousand dollars in your bag. So it is not money laundering that is driving this, this phenomena, unlike the drug trade. It is really, it's much, many other criteria. So that the, the, a, a false balloon, in a way, has been created. In any event, it's been addressed. Mike, do you want to speak at all to any of this, especially? Just one, just, okay. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, because I, yeah, I, no, I, I just, I just wanted to add way. one little detail to this as well, in this, uh, because I, I totally agree with what, uh, what's been said. Uh, but the, the other element in terms of uh, external funding was the relationship between the Assad regime and, and ISIS. And it was not a political relationship, but it was an ec economic relationship. The Assad regime was buying oil from uh, from uh, from ISIS. Now that's I think the, I think we've since shut down all of those uh, uh, all of those refineries. But the uh, ISIS benefited much more economically from the Iranian alliance system than it did from the Gulf. Um, that is going to conclude our panel this afternoon. I thank uh, the three of you gentlemen, and I thank all of you for coming. And thanks, thank to you. Institute. Thank you. Thank you.